three, two, one. Welcome to the Silent Sisters podcast, officiated by your humble high heretics, Little Wolfbird and Blue Lemons. Be warned, curse words and sensitive topics lie ahead, dear novices, so headphones over your shrouds are recommended. Take heed, for in here you shall find all the spoilery secrets within the order of the Silent Sisters in the House of the Stranger Wives. Hello and welcome back for episode two. It's really real now. It's, it's unbelievable, really. As a little recap, in episode one, we explained who we are and what we're about, both personally and within the podcast. Today's episode feels a little more official. We're going to start digging into the meat of A Song of Ice and Fire. Though I am super excited to hit the ground running, we really need to take a moment to do some thank yous and cover some business first. First of all, those of you that gave episode one a listen and decided to stick around, you are amazing and lovely and deserve all the nice things. Launch day was nerve-wracking as hell, to say the least. We had no idea how the first episode, which wasn't even a content episode, would be received. If anyone would actually like our concept and style, but then all these really sweet comments and well wishes started coming in from people saying how much they liked it and were looking forward to more. A good portion of those were people um, from the A Song of Ice and Fire podcasting YouTuber community on Twitter who just immediately jumped right in to signal boost us and follow us back. Wow. I was not expecting that, but my heart grew three sizes that day. Definitely. In addition, we need to do a special shout out to Learned Hands Podcast and the West Rosie Bar Association Slack for allowing me to take over a channel for a few hours when we dropped episode one. But more than that, for the number of people who almost immediately went and gave the episode a listen. Lo, Clint, Maester Mary, Amy Blackfire, Mike of the West, Rohan, Stephen Stark, Pat Spinagle, and many, many more. We cannot adequately show you our appreciation. And also to everyone who has followed us on Twitter and has given us a listen, thank you so, so much for the warm welcome. We appreciate all of you. Yes, and big shout out to Melanie Lot 7 on Twitter. Loved your essay on the Silent Sisters. Thanks for sharing it with us. The Fattest Leech, Sweet Sunray, and all our homies on Tumblr and Discord that ship our ship of dreams with us. Thank you. If we missed anyone, we're sorry. Just know your support and encouragement means a lot. Definitely. Oh, we also wanted to properly thank Rachel Rose for making such a spectacular piece of Silent Sister art to announce the launch of the podcast. That's posted on our Twitter and Tumblr right now. Thank you so much. We absolutely fell in love with it when we saw it. And a big, big thank you to Mastagram, who composed and performed our fabulous intro outro music. We were truly blown away with how great it turned out. You listeners were in the same boat as us from the comments we received. Blue and I were messaging back and forth about how just absolutely shooketh we were. It's exactly the vibe we wanted and beyond anything we hoped for. Thank you so much, Matt. We should tell them about what the fattest leech sent you. It was in response to episode one where we talked about George's feelings about romance. Yes, this was awesome. Thank you, my lady of leech, for bringing this to our attention. Here's a quote from George when he talked about his novel, A Song for Laia. 
"A Song for Lyah" is the oldest of the six stories in this section. It was written in 1973, during my days in Vista, when I was living on Margate Terrace in Chicago's Uptown, sharing a third floor walkup with some of my college chess cronies and working at the Cook County Legal Assistance Foundation. I was also in the midst of the first serious romance of my life. It was not the first time I had ever been in love, but it was certainly the first time my feelings had been reciprocated. That relationship gave Laya its emotional core. Without it, I would have been the proverbial blind man describing a sunset. A Song for Laya was also my longest story to date, my first novella. When I finished it, I knew that I had finally surpassed With Morning Comes Mistfall and The Second Kind of Loneliness, written two years earlier. This was the best thing I'd ever done. It gets even better with the next quote, because this is how George evolved as a writer because of Paris. And Santa Fe was where Paris was too, holding down the fort. We met at a convention in 1975, a few months before I entered into my ill-considered marriage. I knew I liked her the moment she told me that a song for Laya made her cry. Well, she was a stone fox too, and we were both naked when we met, but never mind about that, it's none of your business. Paris and I stayed in touch after that con, exchanging occasional letters through all the years when I was teaching Catholic girls and she was selling snow cones and shoveling elephant dung for Ringling Brothers. In 1981, we got together at another convention and she came to Santa Fe to stay with me a while. That a while will have lasted 22 years by the time you read this. Now and again, one of my readers will ask me why I don't write sad stories of unrequited love any longer the way I did so often in the 70s. Paris is to blame for that. You can only write that stuff when your heart is broken. Y'all. George's story, A Song for Laya, made Paris cry. If that isn't what inspired Leanna's tears for Rhaegar at Rhaegar's song at the tourney of Harrenhal, I will eat my hat. It's two on the nose. And, you know, Leech already knows all this shit, and she's probably laughing at me reacting, which is totally fair. The question now is, will I ever go another day without thinking about how George immortalized the moment he met Paris in A Song of Ice and Fire? I, I don't think that's really possible. Mm. Damn, George. Really sitting the bar high for romantic tributes there. His recent Valentine's Day and anniversary tweets about Paris certainly add fuel to the fire. The last part of the quote is of particular interest to anyone of the shipper persuasion because it makes you think about what kind of endgame he might have in store for his ace-swap cannon ships. He says he's no longer writing sad stories of unrequited love. Now, that certainly doesn't exclude the possibility of tragedy befalling these ships. This is T-Wow we're talking about, and af after all, not to mention ADOS, which isn't even in our field of speculation quite yet. Either way, we're expecting a high body count and some messed up shit to go down but it probably means we'll be seeing love requited and realized on the page before we're done with this story. Yeah, George always makes sure he sprinkles in these small personal victories or two characters showing tender care for each other in these storms of tragedy and violence. It just makes those moments more precious and memorable while all the scheming and warring and horror dominate the foreground. Without them, the novels would just be relentlessly bleak. There's one more interesting quote from George to read to you guys found in the foreword of his 1977 short story collection, Songs of Stars and Shadows. I wrote the lonely songs of Lara and Dor in May of 1974. It's fantasy, not sci-fi. It's romantic as hell. I admit to being an unabashed romantic, I will not say incurable. 
Romanticism is a literary philosophic tradition with a long and honorable history, not a disease. Thank you. But my philosophy and my psyche had both been sorely battered by various personal trials in 1973-74, and from time to time, the corners of my mouth would tremble and I would begin to mutter surly, cynical things. So I sat myself down and tried to write the most romantic vision I could set to paper to restore myself. It worked, sort of, although I suppose you can't put Humpty Dumpty together precisely as he was before, which is why the stories I've written after that period seem a bit darker than those I wrote earlier, at least to me. I can find precious little to say about this Tower of Ashes, save that it is, in my estimation, the best short story I have ever written. Shortly after it was completed and off in the mails, I flew to a world sci-fi convention in Washington, D.C. and flew back to Chicago several days later in love. The woman was Gail Burnick. Oddly enough, we had met at several previous conventions, but somehow never noticed each other before. But we became fast friends on the night that I lost my first Hugo. Y'all, mm. listen, I'm going to be a total Sandor trash bag just for a minute. Not only does this represent one of the pillars of our podcast that George R. R. Martin is a self-described unabashed romantic, but did you catch the little autumn yellow gold nuggets in this? My philosophy and my psyche had been battered by various personal trials in 1973-74, and from time to time, the corners of my mouth would tremble, and I would begin to mutter surly, cynical things. Sandor's distinctive tell, his twitching mouth, and his espoused cynical worldview are George referencing his own life experience and mental state in Sandor's characterization. But A Song of Ice and Fire was written in the early 90s, so this would be after getting together with Paris, who he calls responsible for a shift away from the sad, broken-hearted state that previously influenced his writing. Therefore, Sanders' story is written from the wisdom of a hindsight perspective, where George was back then versus settling down into his happily ever after with Paris. One might even say 2020 hindsight. Oh my god. I'm sorry. I that. that just came to me. <laughs> George was born in 1948, so he would have been about 25 or 26 at the time of his personal trials. He divorced Gail Burnick in 1979 after only four years of marriage. Starting in 1981, when he and Paris made it official, he would have been in his early 30s, which is very close to Sanders' canonical age range. Coincidence? We think not. This is the major turning point in George's personal life from cynicism and feeling battered by life to a restoration. Sander really isn't a complete cynic as he presents himself to be, but a jaded idealist in reality, which sounds close to how George might be describing his experience. A theme of Sander's character arc can be summarized in remembering where the heart is, as he instructs Arya when he dispenses the idea of mercy to the wounded archer, literally putting someone out of their misery when they are suffering. But it's really about Sander remembering where his heart is after many years of walling off that side of himself to be the hound persona. Sander finds a similar, rather miraculous Hail Mary save after his quote-unquote death scene. There's a sense of restoration on the quiet aisle for the gravedigger, both physically and in the psychic sense. I just love that. George imbuing his stories with little fragments of himself. If we find he is referencing something personal in the text, then we should really consider what it means to George when we interpret the scene. At least it should be one of the lenses we look through. For sure. I'm glad we could get a little Sandor fix in. 
Thank you to the fattest leech for sharing this. It made some, it made a fascinating little segment. Leech's specialty is analyzing Martin world and all the recurring themes that can be found across George R. R. Martin's entire body of work. You can check out her website, fattestleechoficeandfire.com, and we'll also post links in the show notes and on our socials when we air the episode. So, Blue, what else has been happening in the ASWAF world since we launched? Besides, you know, cute Valentine's Day tweets from George about Paris. Well, George posted on his Nada blog that he's made some nice dents in TWOW. He says he's written hundreds of pages in 2020, quote, the best year on TWOW since I began it. He went on to say, I need to keep rolling, though. I still have hundreds more pages to write to bring the novel to a satisfactory conclusion. That's what 2021 is for, I hope. He sounded pretty upbeat about that part, so let's send him all the good writing juju and wish him well for a happier year, because he also mentioned this past one was pretty rough emotionally. He sadly lost a few close friends in 2020 and 2021. He also talked a little bit about the more unpleasant parts of getting older. It's definitely not easy when one gets to an age where seeing friends pass away is more of a common occurrence. So it's actually pretty amazing he was able to be so productive through all that. The announcement was nice to hear, but not in a right bitch right kind of way. We're pretty chill about TWOW, even though, of course, we're as eager as anyone else to get our hands on it. In the meantime, we have plenty to talk about and amuse ourselves with while George does his thing. We sure do. And as an author myself, though currently unpublished, I do know the struggles of finishing projects. If anyone reads my fix on AO3, well, they'll know that a lot is up in the air right now in my current projects. So I feel Georgia's struggle on a deep level without the pressure of millions of fans worldwide. Thank goodness. <laughs> uh, let's see. There's also been updates on the production of HBO's House of the Dragon. But just to recap on the general details... Martin and Ryan Condal are co-creators with Miguel Sapochnik and Condal as showrunners. Sapochnik, Condal, and George R. R. Martin, along with Vince Gerardis and Sarah Lee Hess and Ron Schmidt, will be executive producers. Sapochnik, along with Claire Kilner and Greta V. Patel, will be the directors, while Greg Utanis will be director and co-executive producer. Though there are many, many different feelings and attitudes towards this spinoff, one thing we believe almost all fans that can get behind is the fact that Game of Thrones composer, the great Ramin Shivaldi, will be scoring the series. For the confirmed cast as of mid-February, Patty Considine will play King Viserys, Olivia Cook will be Alison Hightower, Emma Darcy will play Princess Rhaenyra, Matt Smith will play Prince Damon, Steve Toussaint will play Lord Corliss Valerian, the Sea Snake, Eve Best will play Princess Rhaenys Valerian. Reese Ilfans will play Otto Hightower, and Sonoya Mizuno will play Missaria. The latest news is that filming should start in April. Perhaps down the road, the Silent Sisters will cover more on the House of the Dragon as filming progresses and as the show begins to air. And because of the subject matter, the Dance of the Dragons, there are loads for us to talk about in terms of interpersonal relations of this warring family. So stay tuned for more on that. We think we should talk about this briefly, since the topic of diversity and casting blew up in the discourse of this show, particularly centered on Steve Toussaint as Corliss Valerian. Certain unsavory sectors of the fandom, headed up by a big-name fan that has a long history of peddling their racist headcanons, were insisting that this was a PC culture running amok and that casting ruined the canon. Our opinion? That's bullshit. Full stop. Not that people of color need a justification for their existence in fantasy worlds, 
but the people that are against the casting are assuming an air of authority on canon, and that deserves to be debunked. There's nothing in the casting that goes against canon. That's assuming the show will even follow Fire and Blood over just going with its own show verse canon where anything is possible. That's right. Corliss has no physical description, nor are his mother or his paternal grandmother described in canon. Valerians have often intermarried with the Targaryens to strengthen their ties to the Iron Throne, but they did not closely guard their Valerian heritage like the Targaryens did with their inbreeding practices. While the Valerians are of old Valerian ancestry too, they are not dragon riders. They are seafarers and traders and have many, many connections outside of Westeros. It is totally plausible their family would have occasionally made advantageous marriages with wealthy, powerful families of, say, Pentos or the Summer Isles. Since we don't know Corliss's mother or paternal grandmother, who is to say Corliss isn't a person of color of mixed heritage in the books? Yeah, assuming that House of the Dragon will go with a certain dubious paternity subplot between Corliss's son, Laenor Valerian, Laenor's wife, Rhaenyra Targaryen, and her lover, Harwin Strong, Corliss being black does absolutely nothing to change the paternity question hanging over his grandchildren. So from where things stand right now and what we know, people losing their shit over Steve Toussaint's casting is ill-founded and highly sus as to why it provokes such a knee-jerk hostile reaction. Especially when that sentiment comes from someone who is already known for spewing racist garbage and we think it's a damn shame they're still in an influential position in the fandom. <sighs> okay, rant over. Jeepers. We good? We're good. Speaking of Fire and Blood, which I mentioned in episode one I planned on reading, I finally picked it up while I was in COVID quarantine with Mr. Blue Lemons in mid-January. I'm a little more than halfway through, just at the beginnings of the dance in the aftermath of Viserys I's death. I must admit, I'm more into the Targaryen history than I initially thought I would be, but it's harder to get invested in the characters as people because it's a maester's, a very horny maester's, historical account rather than an immersive story that follows people on a personal journey. Still, it's entertaining. There are interesting little nuggets to be found. So are you ready to find some interesting little nedgets now? Nedgets? Get it? Nedgets? Wow. Wow. That was your segue into our main topic? Yep. <laughs> Y'all, this is what I opened up the Google Doc to find when I left a notation to add a segue at this point in the script. You think we could try to work on our segue skills as we hope to retain these very nice listeners for our future episodes? Maybe? Considering you practically led the horse to the water, we shall have to wait and see what the future holds. <sighs> okay. <laughs> You're very <welcome. laughs> Okay, so our original thought was to start with talking about the most iconic power couple in A Song of Ice and Fire. San San. Shockingly, no, but I like where your mind was going, though. I couldn't help it. I heard power couple, and it was, like, it was like a Pavlovian response. Understandable. It was supposed to be on Ned and Cat, and we really thought we could cover everything we wanted to say in one episode. Maybe two at most. But you may have also noticed that this episode did not come out in early to mid-February like we had originally planned. As we were writing this episode, it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. 
let's record Sunday, we'd say. But on Sunday, we'd push it back to midweek because we agreed more needed to be said on, on a certain section. By midweek, we'd push it back to the recording on the next Sunday. And we rinsed and repeated this cycle many, many times. Yes, it was a tale that kept growing in the telling. As a result, surprise, our podcast starts with a three-parter. <laughs> yup, this episode is now titled Part One, The Wounded Heart Beneath the Solemn Face, where we will be devoting our attention to Ned Stark, his pre-A Game of Thrones life and relationships, and the many traumas that he carried with him into his marriage with Catelyn Tully. Yeah, this episode will cover Ned right up to the moment the war is over and he returns home to Winterfell. The next episode will swing back around and do the same for Catelyn. The next episode after that will be their relationship as a couple together. It's super important to understand how Ned and Kat's marriage began, which is to say, not on the best foot. Definitely a rocky start there. It was never a union that was intended to happen, but happen it did, necessitated by war and tragedy. Lord Eddard Ned Stark, Lord of Winterfell, Warden of the North, and Hand of the King. Eddard Ned Stark is born in 263 AC to Lord Rickard Stark and Lady Liara Stark, who are, fun fact, first cousins once removed. So Blue really wanted to cut this section because it's really confusing <laughs> if you're not looking at a family tree. But I'm a nerd and I find this fascinating. So bear with me for this part as I go down my nerdy rabbit hole. How could I deny you? I know. <laughs> Ned's father, Rickard Stark, is the only child of Edwile Stark and Marna Locke. Edwile is the only son and eldest child of Willem Stark and Melantha Blackwood. Willem is the second son and heir of Baron Stark and Laura Royce. Now, Ned's mother, Lyara Stark, is the second daughter of Roderick the Wandering Wolf Stark and Arya Flint. Roderick was the seventh and youngest child of Baron Stark and Laura Royce. Long story short, Ned's paternal great-great-grandfather, Baron Stark, is his maternal great-grandfather. It also makes Roderick Stark Ned's grandfather on his mother's side and his great-great-uncle on his father's side. So many ways of describing those relations. I found it fascinating. Wow. I, I don't think my brain can even... Just go look at a family tree. I... Okay. As I'm sure we're all familiar, we got Brandon, Ned, Liana, and Benjamin and Daddy Rickard's bunch. Brandon, born a year or so ahead of Ned in 262, is Rickard's heir. Then following Ned by three or four years is Lyanna in 266 or 267. And last but not least is Ned's baby brother, Benjen, who was born no earlier than 267. At age eight, Ned was sent to the Vale to foster with Lord John Aaron of the Erie. Fosterage is the custom of raising the children of, a, of other nobility and, like marriages, is done to establish friendships and alliances. We should always remember that in a feudal society, politics is always personal. So Ned's fostering creates both a political and a personal bond between Rickard Stark and John Aaron. John is unanimously described as a prudent man with a calming manner, kindly and wise by all who knew him. This arrangement had an enormous effect on young Ned as he, came, as he became quite close to John Aaron, looking at him as a second father. John, who didn't have any children of his own, seemed to really enjoy his dad role. Robert Baratheon, who was also fostering at the Erie at the same time, painted an almost summer camp-like picture of their boyhood years. 
The king's melancholy melted away with the morning mist, and before long, Robert was eating an orange and waxing fond about a morning at the Erie when they had been boys. Had given John a barrel of oranges, remember? Only the things had gone rotten, so I flogged mine across the table and hit Dax right in the nose. You remember? Redfort's pock-faced squire? He tossed one back at me, and before John could so much as fart, there were oranges flying across the high hall in every direction. He laughed uproariously, and even Ned smiled, remembering. Eddard Seven, A Game of Thrones. And for his part, John seemed to take the wilder antics of these kids running around his house with patience and good humor. We can at least be sure that Ned and Robert didn't fear John as a strict disciplinarian. He let the kids be kids, while also preparing them for the responsibilities of their social rank. By their own words, they respected and loved John as a mentor and a father figure. Yes, by comparison, Rickard was described by Ned as stern-faced and having a quiet dignity. One gets a sense that Rickard had the lower tolerance for foolery than John, and perhaps Rickard was a little more reticent to show fatherly affection. Also, Ned, being more of a quiet, reserved child, probably found a refreshing change from the more solemn cultural atmosphere in the North by bonding with Robert, who was more extroverted and boisterous. While Ned's personality was never going to radically change, it seems like he at least learned to loosen up some and laugh a bit more freely during his fostering. For those first eight years, visits home to Winterfell would have been kept purposely minimal, according to George R. R. Martin and How Fostering Works, to ensure that the relationship grows stronger without interruption. At age 16, however, the year of Ned's majority, he was free to come and go as he pleased and made several visits home to Winterfell. Now, we assume Ned is relatively happy and, importantly, trauma-free at this point. His mother, Liara, may have already been long dead by then or not. And I think this marks our first silent sister glare of judgment at George R. Martin. We know Lady Liara had to at least be alive for Benjamin's birth in 267 AC, obviously. And we know she definitely isn't alive by the start of A Game of Thrones in 298 AC. So that's a fucking 31 year window of time to have a major character's mother die. And there's no mention of it happening, not the how or the when, no, no mention of her being buried in the crypts of Winterfell with Rickard, Brandon, and Lyanna. She's literally never a thought in anyone's mind, even if it could be prompted by the narrative in a natural way. Like, for instance, Ned contemplating his dead immediate family members buried in their tombs. Ned's mom didn't even have a name until The World of Ice and Fire came out in 2014. And that's only a semi-canon source published 18 years after the first novel. Until then, when George was asked who Ned's mother was and what happened to her, his answer was, quote, Lady Stark, she died, end quote. So we have no idea if Liara had any impact on her son's character, dead or alive, because she wasn't deemed important enough to warrant a brief mention or even have a name in the canon. By contrast, we know all the details about Rickard's death, and that definitely was traumatic for Ned and affected him going forward. Hmm, Yeah. Liara barely exists, only by virtue of her children's existence. Indeed. It is probably around this time, the mid to late 270s, that Rickard betrothed Lyanna to Robert Baratheon. We should also mention at this point that Brandon Stark has been betrothed to Catelyn Tolley since roughly 276 or 277 AC when Catelyn was 12 years old and Brandon was about 14 or 15. Rickard has cemented bonds with three High Lords. Hoster Tully, Lord of the Riverlands, John Aaron, Lord of the Vale, 
and Robert Baratheon, Lord of the Stormlands. Lady Barbara Destin recalls what she believes are Rickard Stark's machinations in Theon's POV. Rickard Stark had great ambitions too. Sothron ambitions that would not be served by having his heir marry the daughter of one of his own vassals. Afterward, my father nursed some hope of wedding me to Brandon's brother, Eddard, but Catelyn Tully got that one as well. The Turn Cloak, A Dance with Dragons. You may or may not be familiar with fandom contributor Stefan Sauce's Southern Ambitions Theory. Here's the theory. Basically, it states that the lords that had fought together during the War of the Nine Penny Kings in 260 AC... Stephen Baratheon, Hoster Tully, Tywin Lannister, Rickard Stark, and John Arryn sought to strengthen their alliances with each other through betrothals and fostering to form a power block against the tyrannical overreach of the Mad King, Aerys II Targaryen. It is a very well-supported theory, probably one of the most solid ones out there next to R plus L equals J, though it hasn't technically been verified outright by anything in canon. Lady Barbary seems positive something was up, but we can't be 100% sure at this point. At any rate, so many people accept the theory, it's practically treated as canon in a lot of people's minds. We have no idea if Rickard would have considered Barbary Dustin, a daughter of one of his vassals, as a match for Ned, or if he was indeed looking outside his realm for a bride for his second son. Placating his bannerman with a second son would make good sense as well. The next series of events, however, changed everything before Rickard could betroth Ned to anyone. All we know at this point is that Ned is slated to be Catelyn Tolley's brother-in-law, not her husband. We are now at the pivotal year of 281 AC, the year of the false spring and the tourney of Harrenhal and the total dramageddon that ensues. We are going to summarize the events of Harrenhal and Robert's rebellion in bullet point type fashion, but sticking close to what pertains to Ned especially and what the key players close to Ned were doing. If you want an in-depth look at Robert's Rebellion, we highly recommend Radio Westeros and their episode number 28, Robert, Demon of the Trident. We will include a link in the show notes. Our focus in this discussion is going to be on connecting the dots to make sense of the mysteries of Ned's traumatic youth that are largely suppressed in his point of view in A Game of Thrones. Ned, who is now 18 years old, descends the Erie to attend the tourney at Harrenhal Castle, located just north of the God's Eye in the Southern Riverlands. He's accompanied by his foster brother, Robert Baratheon, who has been engaged to Lyanna for at least a few years. Brandon, Lyanna, and Benjen Stark have also traveled from Winterfell to join them. The event is as big as one can get. Many noble houses are represented in the guest list. Plus, it's also a royal affair. King Aerys II Targaryen, his crown prince Rhaegar, and the prince's wife, Princess Elia Martell of Dorne, are also in attendance. There's also one other person of note in the princess's entourage, lady-in-waiting Ashara Dane. It's kind of funny that George kept the Tollies at Riverrun while this was all going on. It doesn't make a lot of sense from an in-universe perspective as to why they wouldn't attend a major event in Hoster's own backyard, somewhere around 250 miles or so away, by most calculations. For Westerosi differences, this is practically nothing. Furthermore, the Wents of Harrenhal are bound by marriage to the Tullys. Minissa Tully was Hoster's wife and the mother of his children. There's some fandom speculation out there on why the Tullys stayed home for the event of the year. Some say Hoster was salty over Jamie Lannister joining the Kingsguard when he was aiming to betroth his younger daughter Lysa to him. 
That's totally possible if Hoster got a heads up that Jamie would be inducted at the tourney. I'm not sure that answer totally satisfies and outweighs all the reasons at least one Tully should be there. I think the main reason is that George just needed to keep a Shara Dane shrouded in mystery in Catelyn's mind. That's because there are characters that speculate Ned and Ashara may have had a thing, and that thing, they believe, may have resulted in Jon Snow, which will be the major landmine issue between Ned and Cat later on. Suppose any of the Tollys had been at Harrenhal to witness anything that happened. In that case, Cat might have had an entirely different perspective on her husband's past. It might have drastically altered her attitudes and actions in A Game of Thrones as well. So the short and sweet of it is most likely that George needed Kat to know little to nothing about the events that surrounded the tourney of Harrenhal, so that she falls prey to the rumors and gossip later on. Exactly. It's the source of that gossip that we're going to dive into next. What little we know about Ashara Dane comes from a handful of sources. Hallen Reed as Little Cranog Man and Mira's retelling to Bran, Barristan Selmy, and Illyria Dane, Ashara's little sister, by way of her nephew, Edric Dane, and Arya's POV. During the first night of feasting, Ashara, known as the maid with laughing purple eyes, seems to be as caught up as Sansa would be in the fairy tale splendor of it all. The Cranach men saw a maid with laughing purple eyes dance with a white sword, a red snake, and the Lord of Griffins, and lastly, with the quiet wolf but only after the wild wolf spoke to her on behalf of a brother too shy to leave his bench. Brand two, a storm of swords. Ashara's canon age range swings wildly between about 12 and 20 for the tourney because we don't know the exact year of her birth. I think it's a safe assumption from that happy, carefree vibe we're getting. She's probably in her early to mid-teens. Obviously, she's straight out of central casting for the idealized, beautiful maiden, full of innocence and virtue, which always skews younger, so they have no inkling of the real monsters that lurk in the world. And that will make even more sense later. We also see a smitten teenage Ned too shy to ask her for a dance himself. So Brandon helps his brother out by asking her on his behalf. Was this the start of a romance? Well, Illyria Dane, once betrothed to Beric Dondarrion, seems to think so. Edric says his aunt told him that her sister and Ned fell in love at Harrenhal, much to Arya's shock. Harwin, who heard the rumors at Winterfell, seems to think it was at least plausible, as he tells Arya. Lady Shardane, it's an old tale, that one. I heard it once at Winterfell, when I was no older than you are now. He took a hold of her bridle firmly and turned her horse around. I doubt there's any truth to it, but if there is, what of it? When Ned met his Dornish lady, his brother Brandon was alive, and it was him betrothed to Lady Catelyn. So there's no stain on your father's honor. There's not like attorney to make the blood run hot. So maybe some words were whispered in the tent of a night. Who can say? Words or kisses, maybe more. But where's the harm in that? Spring had come, or so they thought, and neither one of them was pledged. Arya ate a storm of swords. Yeah, people think it was way more than Ned and Ashara exchanging words and kisses in a tent. The servants of Winterfell also whispered that Ashara Dane is Jon Snow's mother. So yeah, Harwin is trying to finesse the idea of Ned and Ashara having sex as, as delicately as he can to Arya, but he doesn't know anything for a fact. Barristan, on the other hand, who loved Ashara from afar and in secret, speaks of the grief that led to her apparent suicide in 283 AC. Even after all these years, Sir Barristan could still recall Ashara's smile, the sound of her laughter, he had only to close his eyes to see her. 
with her long dark hair tumbling about her shoulders and those haunting purple eyes. Daenerys had the same eyes. Sometimes when the queen looked at him, he felt as if he were looking at Ashara's daughter. But Ashara's daughter had been stillborn, and his fair lady had thrown herself from a tower soon after, mad with grief for the child she had lost, and perhaps for the man who had dishonored her at Harrenhal as well. She died never knowing that Sir Barrison had loved her. How could she? He was a knight of the King's Guard, sworn to celibacy. No good could have come from telling her his feelings. No good came from silence either. If I had unhorsed Rhaegar and crowned Ashara queen of love and beauty, might she have looked at me instead of Stark? The Kingbreaker, A Dance with Dragons. I think Barristan probably has some of the facts right, but I'd wager his interpretation of those facts is very flawed. He romanticized her in life and seems to be romanticizing the tragedy of Ashara's death. Yeah, he speaks of her possibly grieving for a man that dishonored her at Harrenhal, which is sort of odd. Why would she grieve for someone that supposedly did her dirty? Who dishonored her at the tourney, and why did she look to Stark? Which Stark? Barristan says he thought winning the tourney and crowning her his queen might have caused her to look at him as her hero instead of this Stark, which seems to say Ashara needed help with some kind of problem she was having. But again, Barristan is romanticizing how things could have worked out differently. Maybe Ashara's problem was not one a knight, even an exemplary, white-cloaked one, could help her with. Illyria may be partially right that Ned and her sister fell in love at Harrenhal, but it's probably not as simple as love at first dance. Bear with me, because I'm going to walk you through what I think happened, and it's a bit of a windy road. Just to be clear, I'm citing as much information from the text as we're given, which is very little, very fuzzy, and biased, depending on who's doing the telling. Everything in between are my opinions and speculations on the nature of the relationship between Ned and Ashara. There are a million opinions and headcanons on the tourney of Harrenhal out there. This is just what I feel makes the most sense to me. Now let's look at one of the major theories out there, because there are readers that believe Ashara was, quote, dishonored by Brandon, based on Barbary Dustin's characterization of him. She pulled off her glove and touched his knee, pale flesh against dark stone. Brandon loved his sword. He loved to hone it. I want it sharp enough to shave a hair from a woman's cunt, he used to say, and how he loved to use it. Bloody sword is a beautiful thing, he told me once. You knew him, fiance? The lantern light in her eyes made them seem as if they were afire. Brandon was fostered at Bereton with old Lord Dustin, the father of the one I'd later wed, but he spent most of his time writing the rules. His little sister took after him in that. A pair of centaurs, those two, and my lord father always was pleased to play host to the heir to Winterfell. My father had great ambitions for House Riswell. He would have served up my maidenhead to any Stark who happened by, but there was no need. Brandon was never shy about taking what he wanted. I am old now, a dried-up thing, too long a widow, but I still remember the look of my maiden's blood on his cock the night he claimed me. I think Brandon liked the sight as well. A bloody sword is a beautiful thing, yes. It hurt, but it was a sweet pain. The day I learned Brandon was to marry Catelyn Tully, though there was nothing sweet about that pain. He never wanted her, I promise you that. He told me so on our last night together. The Turncloak, A Dance with Dragons. I've seen where people think Babs, I want to call her Babs. Let's call her Babs. Some people think that Babs is saying that Brandon was a flagrant womanizer, that he even coerced her into having sex with him and he was gross about the conquest of her maidenhead. So of course he would do the same to Ashara. 
I would disagree. That's what Babs is saying. Not being shy about taking what he wanted doesn't mean rapey in this context. He had, he had the hots for her and she for him. Neither of them were shy about taking what they wanted from each other. It's not wrong to take what's already being offered gladly. Even if her father is the sort that's okay with commodifying her to advance the family interests. The way she touches the statue's knee with her bare hand is very sexual, and clearly she says she enjoyed her first time and every time after. By that last line, she is saying they were having a very passionate, ongoing affair that Brandon only broke off when he learned his father betrothed him to Catelyn. That speaks to someone who thinks it would be shitty to both women to continue carrying on with his lover, drawing out her heartbreak, and also being unfaithful to his new fiancé at the same time. Why would he then turn around and be unfaithful with Ashara if his betrothal caused him to break up with someone he seemed to have strong chemistry with? Babs is definitely biased, and maybe her feelings were stronger than Brandon's. But she's probably telling the truth that her feelings were reciprocated to some degree. We feel like Brandon has more honor than people give him credit for. George R. R. Martin has said Brandon was very sexually active early on, probably with daughters of vassals and commoners that were eager to curry favor with the heir to Winterfell. But promiscuity with consenting partners while he was unpromised to anyone doesn't mean he had no morals or regard for women. George has described himself as sex positive, so Brandon's behavior seems in line with that thinking. Yeah, I never get a sense that George paints lusty sexual appetites in a negative light, unless it's manipulative, coercive, or violent. Brandon is about 14 or 15 when he's betrothed, so he's probably out sowing his wild oats between 12 and 14. The way he brags about loving to bloody his sword is cringy, but it sounds realistically like something a horny, overprivileged teenage boy would say. He's very good looking, not to mention the heir to Winterfell, and he was a little too accustomed to pussy being thrown at him. It's not a great look, but it's also not the worst either, and certainly doesn't mean he was callously mistreating any of his partners. And once he's promised to Kat, he ends things with Babs, and he seems to try and let her down as gently as he can. I don't think we need George to provide us a survey of all of his previous partners to understand that Brandon is taking his betrothal seriously. Exactly, even if just for the fact that Stark's sons were raised with the commonly held idea that men aren't necessarily expected to be faithful, but should behave with discretion and not embarrass their wives. Having casual sex with common women is one thing. Having affairs with other noble women is the opposite of being discreet, especially when Brandon is in Hoster Tully's backyard while at Harrenhal, and he's going to marry Hoster's daughter right after the tourney. I think he's smart enough to know Rickard wouldn't want him doing anything that would potentially insult the Tullys, even if none of them is present. People talk, as we know. Besides, Hoster is in no mood for any bullshit after he lost Jamie to the Kingsguard. Right. Furthermore, the idea that Brandon would seduce the girl that his shy, unbetrothed little brother had a crush on would be such a massive dick move. <laughs> Brandon enjoys sex and is hot-headed in a fight, yes, but that doesn't mean he'd do something that's selfish and awful to Ned after helping make the introductions with Ashara. I feel like Brandon's characterization doesn't quite fit with a man that could dishonor Ashara at Harrenhal. Not to mention that Barrison describing what happened to Ashara as dishonor is suspect. Because he's a man with unrequited love with Ashara, or rather, in unrequited love with the image of her. He has Ashara placed on a high pedestal of ideal femininity, a mated from the songs, an unparalleled beauty who is always sweet and smiling, both innocent and pure, while also unaware of her allure 
with those haunted purple eyes. Of course, Barrison would never think it possible that his perfect lady would willingly uh, exchange words or kisses, or maybe even more, in a tent with a guy she fancied. Not trying to virgin shame Barrison, but how well does a lifelong celibate man really understand women? But who is this guy from Hall that Ashara was allegedly involved with if it's not Brandon? Which Stark did Ashara turn to and why? Was it Ned? Consider for a moment that perhaps the situation was way more complicated than a matter of two people falling in love while dancing or of an innocent girl dishonored by someone. The truth could be a little bit of both, and it could involve more than two people. Now, there is someone present who actually does fit the description of an asshole brother that would cockblock Ned. Robert Baratheon. Oh, wait, but Howland Reed never saw Ashara dancing with Robert, and Robert was already betrothed to Lyanna, who he's madly in love with. That reasoning seems kind of weak when you look at Robert's track record of being supremely selfish and thoughtless in the pursuit of gratifying his desires. He may declare his undying love for Lyanna, and Nen really wants to believe that's true. But there's strong evidence that his words are hollow. Robert has a very consistent pattern of behavior that belies the idea that he truly loves anyone. He certainly doesn't make any character feel loved by him, at least not in any meaningful way. Even Ned, who is so certain of their brotherly bond, struggles to feel supported and understood by Robert in the GOT. Here are Robert's major highlights. By the time of his betrothal, Robert fathered Maya Stone by a veil woman, leading Lyanna to tell Ned that Robert would never be faithful in marriage. She's right. Declaring his love for her had never made him faithful to his betrothal at any point. Later on, while he believed the love of his life had been kidnapped, imprisoned, and raped by Rhaegar, he still managed to take the time to father another bastard, Bella, while he was taking refuge in a whorehouse at Stony Sept. Bella said Robert had all the girls at the peach, but liked her mother best. So he's fooling around with multiple women and not like sick with fear for Lyanna's well-being. From the start of their marriage in 284 AC, Robert comes to Cersei's bed in a drunken stupor. Cersei said their wedding night was the only time Robert ever aroused her. That is, until the moment he called her Lyanna. So we can infer that Robert was attentive to her only when he can get drunk enough to make himself pretend that she was Lyanna. Of course Cersei is angry and resentful, and understandably so. But the fact that Cersei isn't the quiet, uncomplaining wife and voices her displeasure, ironically, as Lyanna wouldn't put up with his crap either, makes Robert bitter and violent. Thereafter, he's a drunken brute in all their relations, where she's left sore and hurting after being, quote, mauled by him. It's rape, not to mention all the time he hits her. So this is how Robert is capable of reacting when his bubble is burst or when a woman calls him out instead of giving him an abject adoration. Oh, I can't wait to cover Robert and Cersei. <laughs> and of course, he was cheating on Cersei right from the jump. During his brother Stannis' wedding to Celise Florent, Robert deflowered the bride's cousin, Delena Florent, on the bed reserved for the newlyweds, which ended up in producing Edric Storm, Robert's only acknowledged bastard. Robert hand-waved away this senseless affront to his brother and sister-in-law, blaming it on the alcohol. Always blaming it on the alcohol. Robert swore he didn't mean to shame Stannis and that he didn't know what bedchamber he was in. But still, it was just selfish disregard for anyone but himself, just so he could get a quick lay. A non-asshole would be celebrating with his brother and making sure he had a good send-off on his wedding night. 
Then in the GOT, Ned meets Bara's mother, an unnamed young brothel girl that gave birth to the latest of Robert's bastards. Ned is appalled to find she's a woefully naive child who was taken in by Robert's charms. She was a virgin and innocent when Robert paid her madam for her. She implores Ned to tell Robert that she's been faithful to him and that Chitaya has given her six months off from taking customers for the baby and for her hope that Robert would come back for her. She doesn't want any money or jewels just to be together with Robert, who she said was good to her. Her guileless sincerity breaks Ned's heart, but Ned's seen all this before. In his own words, he says, quote, Robert would swear on dying love and forget them all before Evanfall. He lies and makes empty promises to elicit sex from young girls who had the misfortune of believing him. Let's put a pin in this idea because it will become relevant later. There's a big difference between Brandon and Robert, though. Brandon was at least honest with Babs, even though it hurt, and he told her face to face. Robert doesn't even have the decency to do that. One last point. When Ned begs Robert to spare the life of Sansa's dire wolf lady, he says, quote, Please, Robert, for the love you bear me, for the love you bore my sister, please, end quote. And Robert looks Ned in the eye, but quickly capitulates to Cersei's demand. When Ned challenges Robert to at least take responsibility and do the deed himself, Robert turns his back and walks away without another word. Even worse, he tells Ned later that he knew Joffrey was lying the whole time. How are we to take Robert's claim of love for Ned and Lyanna as real and true if he can't even be moved to stand up to Cersei on their behalf the minute shit got moderately uncomfortable for him? Taken all together, I think this does paint a picture of a person capable of seducing and discarding Ashara, inconsiderate of either her or his foster brother's feelings. I'm definitely not resting our case there because I think it's important to understand how and why it could have possibly gone down. Everything has to fit together with the facts and make some narrative sense. Yes, for that, we need to look at what happened next. The infamous joust that ended in Prince Rhaegar crowning Lyanna Stark, the queen of love and beauty. This is the moment where all of the smiles died. On one side, we have Prince Elia publicly humiliated by her husband favoring another woman. On the other hand, we have Brandon Stark needing to be restrained from confronting Rhaegar for sliding his sister's honor, according to the world book. Robert laughs it off, saying Rhaegar only gave Lyanna her due, but there's a seething anger under the surface. And Lyanna is caught in the middle and in a very awkward position. Naturally, this would invite speculation as to what Lyanna did to garner the prince's attention and to cause him to behave so brazenly, hence why Brennan was so pissed. What Rhaegar did was a fourfold faux pas. Elia was shamed, House Stark was insulted, House Baratheon as the fiancé was as well, and Lyanna looked like a potential homewrecker. This, of course, is working under the assumption that it is the women's fault that men behave the way they do. After the drama Bomba exploded, it makes sense that someone might need to smooth things over between House Stark and Princess Elia. Remember, politics is personal, and it won't do for the Starks to be disfavored by the future queen. Even if the Southern Ambitions theory is true, no one was planning on overthrowing the Targaryen regime at this point. They still very much expected Rhaegar and Elia to ascend to the throne. We're keeping this speculation train rolling. As we said, it makes sense for the Starks to try to smooth things over for everyone's sake. The most natural way to reach out to Princess Elia would be through her lady-in-waiting, Ashara Dane. 
The best start to do that would be Ned, since he's calmer than Brandon and already has an established rapport with Ashara from the dance. Like, hey, could you please tell her grace that my sister did nothing wrong to encourage her husband's fuckery and she's not trying to hop on his dick and she's super embarrassed about this too. Please and thank you. But like with way more tact. <laughs> now, if what Harwin told Arya has grains of truth, could this be the real reason Ned and Ashara spoke privately in a tent one night? Not as a tryst, but rather as damage control. I would not be shocked to learn that any of these details described turned out to be not what people assume they were. Besides, Ned probably has no idea about the Night of the Laughing Tree situation, who was almost certainly Lyanna in disguise. And that was most likely what drew Rhaegar to her. Or if he did, Ned certainly wouldn't bring it up because it would only make things worse for Lyanna. Eris was, after all, a little paranoid about the mystery night thing and had a very twitchy trigger finger. Yep, and it seems like Lyanna already had a little spark of attraction to Rhaegar too, since Howland Reed reports that she was moved to tears by Rhaegar's song, The Night of the Feast. He probably definitely seemed a hell of a lot more cultured and sensitive than Robert, who spent the night in a drinking competition. If Rhaegar reacted with appreciation for her defiance of gender roles and boldness of spirits with her Night of the Laughing Tree stunt, that might make Lyanna fall for someone that seemed to truly get her, unlike her betrothed. We already went over the whole thing with George and Paris and a song for Lya at the beginning of this episode. Because of that, we're very sure this is not leading up to be the kidnapping that the other characters believe it to be. Definitely does not look that way. So how would Ashara and Robert fit into all this if what we believe happened actually happened? Well, Robert was at the feast too, and though he might have been drinking heavily, he still could have noticed his betrothed reaction to Rhaegar's song. Maybe he wouldn't think anything of it then, but after witnessing Rhaegar crown Lyanna, hmm, he might be thinking some thoughts he doesn't want to be thinking. And Robert doesn't make good choices when he's drunk, and the wine is flowing all turning long. Bottom line, should we trust Robert to deal with any of this in a healthy, mature way after suppressing his anger? Hell no. Right. This is Robert we're talking about. We already know from Ned that Robert has an idealized image of Liana and that he only sees her beauty, not the iron underneath. She's a strong-willed girl with a mind of her own. He's possessive of her when another man encroaches on what belongs to him. But he's also incapable of being faithful to her, even when he believes her to be held captive. Nor can Robert honestly accept any cracks in his vision of Liana. Still can't, even 16 years later in a GOT. There's a fine line between love and hate with some people, and that can be particularly true when they feel threatened or insecure. One thing Robert doesn't have is Liana's love, something he always tellingly glosses over when declaring his love for her. And this thing with Rhaegar sort of highlights that in a very uncomfortable way. Robert can't fight the crown prince with fists or weapons. But he could resort to his favorite thing next to smashing faces to feel like a manly man again. Fucking. Princess Elia is obviously not the option here for getting back at Rhaegar. That would be a treason and would result in immediate beheading. Not that someone as sweet and noble as Elia would go for that kind of thing anyway, but the possibility is there. And Robert is not going to attempt a little pre-wedding action on Lyanna either. All her brothers are with her, and Brandon would lose his shit 
if his sister's honor was besmirched again. Ashara, unfortunately, would make a good target for a few reasons. She's a young teenager, and that usually comes with being susceptible to the advances of a more experienced older man, but one who is also still in the prime of his youth, very handsome and, quote, muscled like a maiden's fantasy, end quote. She's a maid not much older than Sansa and is swept away by the opulence and excitement of the tourney, much like Sansa is in A Game of Thrones. Ashara is at the moment primed for some romance. There's not like a tourney to make the blood run hot. Of course, she probably came to court with the purpose of eventually finding a good match. Yeah, we can't imagine life at King Eris's court was anywhere close to as magical and carefree as Harrenhal was during the tourney. Unfortunately, Princess Elia was always frail of health and even more so since birthing her daughter, Princess Rhaenys, in 280 AC. She was even left bedridden for six months in recovery. Eris was also a hateful bigot towards the Dornish, including his daughter-in-law and grandchild. King's Landing must have been a dull and depressing, if not outright hostile place to be most of the time for Ashara, and a far cry from the glamour and pageantry she probably expected. Ashara is also a member of Rhaegar's household. In a real sense, she's supposed to be under his protection while she's a lady in waiting to his wife, similar to a wardship. In our estimation, dishonoring Ashara would be the closest Robert could get to one-upping Rhaegar, crowning Lyanna, his queen of love and beauty. As in, spoiling something of Rhaegar's impugns Rhaegar as a man and as a prince, like saying, if he can't troll the women under his roof, how can he be fit to control the realm? Which um, would rhyme, I guess, in a karmic sense, if... You look at how Robert turned out as a king and with his wife, Cersei, and the children and his brother-in-law. Well, you get the idea. Yeah, it sounds like something Martin would do, uh, to us at least. Not that Robert has to consciously plot all this out. Psychological drivers and deep-seated emotional wounds can play out through instinctive actions. Rarely are they ever consciously understood without serious introspection. And he's partying and drinking heavily. Robert just makes shitty, selfish decisions when he's been drinking. Remember how in the months leading up to the start of A Game of Thrones, Robert was able to convince 15-year-old Barra's mother that he truly cared for her to the point that she stayed faithful to him and held on to the insane hope that the king would come back for her and the baby to live as a family? That's how much of a bullshit artist he is. How hard would it then be to fill Ashara's head with the same sweet words and empty promises to get up her skirts back in his youth when he looked like a god? He's been pulling that shit for most of his life, as proved by his string of bastards around the kingdom. Sure, he's betrothed, but it's plain that Robert can make a girl believe she's special enough and love is true enough to literally overcome any obstacle, even a pesky little betrothal. He's just that kind of selfish prick. He really is. So let's say during this tourney, Robert turns on the charm and indeed seduces Ashara. He leads her on that he has serious intentions towards her. He has her falling hard for him, so she either consents to have sex with him or that he pressures her into a sexual situation she's unsure of, but sort of goes along with. Both are fairly possible scenarios that we can understand happening, but one is definitely cruddier. Most girls at that age wouldn't have the tools to recognize or deal with being love-bombed like that. Then, after the deed is done, Robert, being Robert, abruptly cools off, leaving Ashara as stunned and confused as Barra's mother must have been. 
who could she turn to for answers? Why, she turned to Stark, of course, making it time for another tent meeting. Dun, da, da, da. <laughs> Remember how we thought Ned might go to Ashara to smooth things over with Princess Elia? That's a two-way street. Ned is Robert's best friend and foster brother. Surely he could speak to Robert on her behalf while she's still under the spell of his promises. Or at least Ned might help ease her mind from the sinking suspicion that she might have just gotten played for a fool and the fear that she is now soiled and ruined. All this fits with what Barristan said, just not in the way he imagined. Okay, This is definitely not a problem he could have helped her with, nor would she have turned to him if he crowned her as queen. It makes sense that Ashara's problem is something Ned, or, quote, Stark, could actually do something about. I could see Ned, being the compassionate guy that he is with a fondness for Ashara, explaining things to her gently, promising to never speak of this unfortunate mistake, her dishonor, and presumably letting her move forward with a clean slate. Let's look at Ned's full quote this time when he's speaking to Bara's mother. Tell him... Tell him that when you see him, my lord, as it, as it please you, tell him how beautiful she is. I will, Ned had promised her. That was his curse. Robert would swear undying love and forget them before evenfall. But Ned Stark kept his vows. He thought of the promise he had made to Lyanna as she lay dying and the price he'd paid to keep them. Forget them before evenfall seems like an awkward term of phrase in this context. Usually when someone has a one-night stand, they forget them the next day, or they're leaving them in the morning. The cold light of day is when the spell is broken. Evanfall is dusk, when the sun goes down, or when a star falls. House Dane of Starfall is usually associated with the morning. A Dane knight worthy of wielding their ancestral sword, Dawn, is called the Sword of the Morning. I know this is a small thing, and it may sound like I'm trying to read tea leaves here, but I can't help but wonder if George is using the unusual word choice of Evanfall to connect Ashara and Robert's behavior with women. Her star was rising just at the beginning of Hall when she was a maid with laughing purple eyes, but how quickly things could have changed after the first blow to her innocence with even more tragedies lying ahead in the not-too-distant future. A shooting star burns bright and brilliantly, but it also burns out fast as it falls from heavens to the unforgiving earth. Ashara will eventually meet her end, falling from the tower at Starfall. Evanfall might suggest the dishonor is just the beginning stages of Ashara's descent. But maybe, just for this brief moment in time, Ned was able to catch a falling star after a fall from grace. At any rate, George seems to be closely connecting Ned's memory being triggered by Bara's mother to Robert's history of this exact bullshit, to immediately jumping to Liana's death at the Tower of Joy and the heavy price he'd paid to keep those promises. It all might be more interconnected than we realize, more than just Ned versus Robert when it comes to keeping promises. Like with Bara's mother, perhaps Ned was left cleaning up after Robert's mess of broken promises and shattered hopes, one of those nights at Hall. And maybe his kindness and empathy planted some seeds in Ashara's heart. Yeah, just because they danced together and Ned already felt something doesn't mean she immediately reciprocated his feelings. What we suggest could be happening in these theoretical interactions is that a budding intimacy developed as they sympathized with each other's problems and tried to help each other resolve them. Not a whirlwind romance, per se. At least not as the rumors would have you believe, but as something more subtle and nuanced. Could it have evolved from there into more romantic feelings on her part? Sure. 
They were both unpromised to anyone, and maybe that's the way they hoped it would go. Rickard would be coming south for Brandon's wedding, and that would be a good time for Ned to ask him to arrange a match with the Dornish house. There's also the possibility that they just remained close friends, having never moved into the romance area. But we are of the mind that having some kind of intimate relationship established here makes good story sense as we move into Robert's Rebellion and the aftermath that will lead Ned back to Dorn, because Ned is probably going to need Ashara's help again. Let's move forward from the tourney now. The royal family goes back to King's Landing and Dragonstone, respectively. The World Book tells us the false spring only lasted two moon turns. By the new year of 282 AC, Winter had returned to Westeros, and Princess Elia gave birth to her second child, Prince Aegon. Rhaegar leaves her soon after the birth and takes to the road with some companions. Fuckery definitely seems to be afoot with that. Ned and Robert return to the Eyrie, and Bran Stark goes to River Run to visit the Tullys, probably with Lyanna and Benjen in tow, to prepare for the wedding. If Barristan is correct that Ashara was pregnant, then finding herself with child at some point after returning with Princess Elia would be a very good time for Ashara to retreat from public life and go home to Starfall before her pregnancy begins to show. Who is the father of Ashara's alleged baby? That's even more difficult to say. I'm not going to just jump to the conclusion that it had to be Robert, based on my speculation. The lack of information and clarity of the timeline makes it really hard to be sure where she was if, when, she conceived. All of Robert's rebellion is just shy of a year, so a baby could have been conceived on Dragonstone when Elia was giving birth to Aegon, or shortly after in King's Landing, depending on when Eris had her brought there. But let's just put Ashara on the back burner for now. Remember how we just said that Rhaegar had taken to the road with his companions? Well, this is when Lyanna, how should we put this, disappears in air quotes. According to the world book, this happens, quote, not 10 leagues from Harrenhal. So it makes sense that Lyanna never left the Riverlands area after the tourney. Depending on whether or not you believe the kidnapping narrative is true, will determine if you think that Rhaegar kidnapped Lyanna or if she ran away willingly with him, at least at first. There are more theories on that, but that's a discussion for another day. In 282 AC, Brandon Stark rides north from Riverrun while visiting his betrothed to rendezvous with his father on the road. The plan is for them all to return to Riverrun together to celebrate his wedding to Kat. But upon hearing of the kidnapping of his sister by Rhaegar, he turns south and rides straight for King's Landing to demand his sister's release. Actually, he rashly called for Rhaegar to come out and die, unaware that Rhaegar wasn't there. Mad King Eris, taking this for treason, imprisons Brandon for plotting murder against the Crown Prince. Lord Rickard bypasses Riverrun to beeline it for King's Landing with 200 men arriving shortly after Brandon, where he is also arrested. When trial by combat is demanded, King Eris, insane as he is, calls fire as his champion. He then strings up Rickard, dressed fully in armor, out above a fire pit while Brandon has a Tairashi strangling device around his neck just out of reach of his longsword. Rickard roasts alive while Brandon strangles himself to death attempting to save his father. Eris, fearing further treasonous reprisals, demands the heads of Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon. John Aaron refuses to turn over his foster sons and calls his banners in revolt instead. The civil war begins in late 282 or early 283 AC. This is a summary of events bearing some details just to keep things moving. 
Ned crosses the Vale to the Fingers and sails north to White Harbor to call his banners. The first battles begin in the Vale at Goldtown against vassal houses still loyal to the crown. Goldtown eventually fell to the rebels led by Robert. Robert then sails to Storm's End to call his banners, takes care of the Targaryen loyalists in the Stormlands, then is free to march north to meet up with Jon Arryn and Ned Stark's forces. Meanwhile, in the negotiations to gain Lord Hoster's support in the rebellion, Ned agrees to a betrothal with Catelyn, upholding his father and brother's promises. Ned and Cat still haven't met yet, and won't until after the Battle of the Bells. So if Ned and Ashara did have a burgeoning romantic relationship at Harrenhal, any hope of a future just got dashed by Brandon's death and the need for Hoster's swords. Next came the Battle of the Bells at Stony Sept. That is where Robert was wounded and holed up inside the Peach, the brothel where he fathered Bella. The small folk were hiding the rebels from the Targaryen forces led by John Connington. Hoster and Ned showed up with their armies and defeated Connington, but not without the loss of John Arryn's cousin and heir, Sir Dennis Arryn. Hoster took this opportunity to hastily betroth his daughter Lysa to John. They all returned to River Run, where, in a double ceremony, Ned wed Catelyn and Lysa wed John. Ned promptly does his duty by betting his new wife. Ned had lingered scarcely a fortnight with his new bride before he too had ridden off to war with promises on his lips. At least he had left her with more than words. He had given her a son. Nine moons had waxed and waned, and Rob had been born in River Run while his father still warred in the south. She had brought him forth in blood and pain, not knowing whether Ned would ever see him. Her son, he had been so small. Catelyn 10, A Game of Thrones. So Ned leaves Catelyn pregnant with Rob at River Run as he and John rejoin the war. This is where Ned's story is taking him south again and eventually into Dorne. Loyalist and rebel forces clash at the Trident. Prince Rhaegar is there defending his father's throne. Robert is wounded by the crown prince but still manages to kill him with a blow to the chest from his warhammer. Robert then declares his claim for the Iron Throne, aided by the fact that Robert's grandmother was Princess Rael. Targaryen, daughter of King Aegon V. The sack of King's Landing in 283 AC was one of the last major battles of the war. Ned led the charge because of Robert's wounds sustained at the Trident. However, Lord Tywin Lannister, who had previously remained undeclared for either the rebels or the loyalists, beat Ned to King's Landing, tricked Eris to being let inside the city, and then turned on the king and sacked the city. Sir Jaime of the King's Guard kills Eris, and Ned finds him sitting on the Iron Throne. Tywin's bannermen Gregor Clegane and Amory Lorch breached Magor's holdfast and brutally murdered Princess Elia and her children. When Robert arrives at the capital, he's satisfied by the deaths of Elia and her children, calling them only dragonspawn, and declines to seek any justice for their murders. Yikes. Yikes. Ned, rightfully horrified by the gruesome sight of the remains, is outraged and disgusted by Robert's reaction. The Fawcetter brothers have a falling out because of this. Ned leaves the city to lift Mace Tyrell's siege on Storm's End, held by Stannis Baratheon. Right afterward, Ned received word that his sister Lyanna was being held at the Tower of Joy in the Red Mountains of Dorne. That's just to the southwest of Storm's End. He travels with only six companions and no army. Helen Reed, Lord Willem Dustin, Bab's husband, Ethan Glover, Martin Castle, Tia Wolf and Sir Mark Riswell. It's never stated how Ned found out his sister's location. With the war over at this point and the Targaryens either dead or having fled into exile, 
it might be safe for a communication to be sent to Ned while he's at Storm's End. Now, this may depend a lot on how much Elia knew about Rhaegar's activities with Lyanna after she disappeared and where he was keeping her under guard. George R. R. Martin called Elia's relationship to Rhaegar, quote, complex. It is also possible her lady-in-waiting might have been privy to that information. What I like about this idea and what I think might have happened at Harrenhal is that it makes Ashara Dane an active player in the events, not just a tragic figure being acted upon by the events. Maybe she isn't a fridged woman after all. At least I hope. George is playing the long game until he's ready to reveal the full history of this time period. But this also puts Ashara in a very conflicted position as well. On the one hand, she has a brother in the Kingsguard, Arthur Dane, sworn to defend and obey the royal family to his death. He's also one of the King's Guard left to keep Lyanna Stark detained at the Tower of Joy and will kill anyone attempting to remove her. The princess she served was brutally raped and murdered along with her children by the rebel forces, possibly in the name of the man that dishonored her at Harrenhal. On the other hand, Ashara turned to a Stark in her time of need and at least had a friendship with him, maybe more. And if she had information on Ned's missing sister, I think she would share that with him as soon as she was able. Maybe she might have thought what Rhaegar had done was wrong, even if she had her own brother Arthur at stake in the fight. And if I'm right about what happened between Ashara and Robert, wouldn't that also make Ashara a little sympathetic to Lyanna's plight? She might be able to understand full well how a naive young maiden could fall too fast and hard for someone and find herself in a difficult situation as a result especially if she also understood what kind of man her betrothed is. George does like to create interesting little parallels. I'm just saying. <laughs> At the Tower of Joy, or so Rhaegar named it, Ned and co. meet with Sir Arthur Dane, Sir Oswald Went, and Lord Commander Sir Gerald Hightower of the Kingsguard. They fight, and only Ned and Howland Reed survive. Ned finds Lyanna inside, bleeding out quickly from a hard childbirth, where she says the haunting phrase, Promise me, before she dies. Ned destroys the tower for Cairns to bury the dead and takes Sir Arthur's sword Don to Starfall to return to House Dane. Given Sir Barrison's claims that Ashara gave birth to a stillborn daughter, and given that Rhaegar plus Lyanna equals John, we are all in agreement that R plus L equals J, correct? Yes? Yep. Okay. It is our theory that upon Ned's arrival to Starfall, Ashara probably played a large role in helping Ned plan out the cover-up of John's parentage, especially after knowing what Robert thought of the, quote, dragon spawn. We know that Lyanna was returned to Winterfell for a burial in the crypt, so there was probably some time needed for the Silent Sisters, a, a, the Silent Sisters, to prepare her body, most likely skeletonizing her remains for the long journey. That's plenty of time to plan the cover-up, and a grieving, traumatized Ned is probably going to need help with that. The ambiguity surrounding Ashara's pregnancy would help to facilitate rumors that might explain away Ned's supposed bastard son. The more conflicting rumors there are, the better. It's harder to pin down the exact truth when there are so many whispers pointing in vastly different directions. Barristan says Ashara has a stillborn daughter. The servants of Winterfell and Cersei believe Ned fathered Jon Snow by Ashara. Edric Dane, Ashara's nephew, throws the name Wyla into the mix. Ah, yes, Wyla, who was a wet nurse long in the service of House Dane, as Edric explains to Arya. It's possible Wyla was already present at the Tower of Joy, summoned by Sir Arthur Dane in preparation for Lyanna to give birth. That's how Ned could have made it back to Starfall with Jon. 
Edric Dane believes Wyla is Jon Snow's mother, a story probably told to him by his aunt Illyria. Robert also apparently believes Wyla was Ned's one and only indiscretion because he says Ned told him that at one point. Misdirections pointing every which way except R plus L equals J. Robert assumes this Wyla must have been a very special woman for Ned to stumble. You were never the boy you work, Robert grumbled. More's the pity. And yet there was that one time, her name, that common girl of yours, Becca. No, she was one of mine. God's lover, black hair and these sweet big eyes you could drown in them. Yours was Alina? No, you told me once. Was it Meryl? You know the one I mean, your bastard's mother. Her name was Wyla, Ned replied with cool courtesy, and I would sooner not speak of her. Wyla, yes, the king grinned. She must have been a rare wench if she could make Lord Eddard Stark forget his honor, even for an hour. You never told me what she looked like. Ned's mouth tightened in anger. Nor will I. Leave it be, Robert, for the love you say you bear me. I dishonored myself, and I dishonored Catelyn in the sight of gods and men. Gods have mercy. You scarcely knew Catelyn. I had taken her to wife. She was carrying my child. You are too hard on yourself, Ned. You always were. Damn it, no woman wants Baylor the Blessed in her bed. He slapped a hand on his knee. Well, I'll not press you if you feel so strong about it. Though I swear, at times you're so prickly you ought to take the hedgehog as your sigil. Eddard II, A Game of Thrones. Obviously, Ned's anger at this topic being raised is not just part of an act to deflect away from John's mother. Genuinely upset by Robert trying to bond with him over sharing their casual sexual exploits with barely remembered women. Of course, Ned is still traumatized by Lyanna's death and having to bear the weight of keeping John safe from Robert. As we discussed, Ned spoke of the heavy price he had to pay to keep his promises to Lyanna. There's also the shame and embarrassment he foisted on Catelyn as a result. That alone would explain Ned's emotional reaction in this scene. But we should also consider that the cost of keeping the secret extended to Ashara Dane, too, who ended her own life soon after Ned left Starfall. And if Robert was the one who dishonored Ashara and promptly discarded her, woof, that adds a whole other layer of salt to Ned's feelings in this scene, doesn't it? So... It may not just be Wyla's mention, who is really nothing more than a ruse that triggers Ned. It can also be the reminder of Robert's flippant attitude towards disposable women who are nothing more than a pretty pair of eyes or breasts to him. It is kind of funny how Robert recalls at this moment a girl with black hair and very distinctive eyes, though. No kidding. And it's kind of funny that the first name he throws out is Alina, an A name. That could be even more of a subconscious trigger for Ned. And if Ashara was at the very least a person who Ned cared for in some way, and he was traumatized by her suicide as well, and Robert is the man that dishonored her, it's no wonder Ned would be immediately squashing this conversation and suppressing any painful memories from surfacing. We have such few and fragmented bits of information from Ned's POV precisely because he has spent the last 15 years trying not to think about any of this. Let's rewind a bit and go back to those final days at Starfall. It should be noted that House Dane seems to bear Ned absolutely no ill will for slaying Arthur Dane or for being on the opposite side of the war. It would seem highly unlikely the heir to Starfall, Edric Ned Dane, 
would be so nicknamed if they did. Ned did return the sword Dawn to them, and they also sent Wyla to care for John on the journey back to Winterfell. There seems to be real sympathy for Ned coming from the Danes. Yeah, and I'm sure Ned would feel the same for Ashara's recent stillbirth. Ashara's suicide is probably the result of compounded heartbreak, all within the span of about a year or so. Whatever happened at Harrenhal, perhaps being caught between conflicting loyalties on both sides of a war, the horrific murders of Elia and her children, and some survivor's guilt over having left Elia's side wouldn't be a stretch of the imagination. The death of her brother at the hand of a man she may have cared for in some capacity, plus her own pregnancy that ended in stillbirth. We assume her baby was probably wanted, no matter what the circumstances of the conception. While the identity of the father remains so uncertain, I can't really rule out that it wasn't Ned or Robert. Ashara may have left Harrenhal with lifted spirits and renewed hope for a betrothal, only to learn later of Ned marrying Catelyn in his brother's place. Then to discover she was pregnant on top of all that? Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> Indeed, and one can only imagine what that bittersweet reunion must have been like at Starfall between Ashara and Ned. Two people grieving their enormous losses and trying to figure out how to best protect baby John in the aftermath. Perhaps Ashara then volunteered to use her pregnancy to obfuscate the identity of John's mother, suggesting that a rumor be spread amongst Ned's soldiers soon to be returning to Winterfell. That would be very brave and noble of her to do that, hence why Ned would honor her sacrifice. And perhaps the time of this suggestion... Ashara had already been contemplating her suicide, thus making it easier for her to start a rumor about herself. Woof. Yes, and in turn, Ned would grudgingly name some woman named Wyla to Robert to create more diversion. If Ashara was the one who tipped Ned off to Liana's whereabouts and was aiding the cover-up, he certainly would want to make sure Ashara was well protected from being implicated as an accessory to Rhaegar's actions as far as Robert was concerned. Best to make sure Robert thinks Jon Snow has absolutely nothing to do with Lyanna, Rhaegar, or House Dane beyond Sir Arthur, who was among those guarding the Tower of Joy. Naming Wyla helps keep Ashara and the rest of her family safe from Robert's wrath, should he ever become suspicious. I think Ashara would have been sad over how things turned out between her and Ned, but also understanding of Ned doing what he had to do when he wasn't officially betrothed to anyone. By the time he departed Harrenhal, he believed his father was on the way south to celebrate Brandon's wedding. We know Ned wasn't in a position of being able to refuse Hoster Tully's conditions at the time he agreed to marry Catelyn. He also had to consummate the marriage immediately as custom would dictate. With Catelyn pregnant, Ned had a responsibility not only to his wife, but to his child and heir. And most of all, there's the solemn promise he made to his beloved dying sister, who he couldn't save despite trying his best to reach her in time. Unfortunately, the reality is that would carry more weight than any words that might have been exchanged in a tent one night at attorney, no matter how heartfelt they were. It's horribly tragic. If there was a budding romance between them, it definitely died before it could ever really get started. Things happened that were beyond their control. Plus, they definitely wouldn't be the same innocent teenagers they were at Harrenhal. They're two traumatized people that fate set on different paths, and now they're left trying to pick up the pieces of their lives. They really wouldn't have any other choice but to part ways and move on. If Ashara's stillborn daughter is revealed to have been Ned's child, or at least 
a child Ned would have claimed as his own to mitigate the tarnishing of Ashara's honor if he could have still married her? That's just even more heartbreaking that it turned out the way it did. Maybe that's why House Dane is so kindly towards Ned if his intentions towards Ashara were that pure. I could definitely see George doing something like that. Definitely. The idea is a stab right through the heart. And not to mention, Ned is also carrying with him the death of his close friends, say Hal and Reed, that accompanied him to the Tower of Joy. He couldn't even return all of their bones to their families and had to leave them buried in the Red Mountains. There's no wonder that Ned leaves Dorne in such a bitter and broken state. Absolutely. Before returning to Winterfell, Ned and Robert reconcile in their shared grief over Lyanna's death. Robert, the first, now king of the Seven Kingdoms, names John Arryn as his hand of the king and marries Cersei Lannister to guarantee Tywin's support. Ned returns home to lay Lyanna to rest in the crypts and to raise her son as his bastard. And soon after, his wife, Catelyn, will be arriving from Riverrun with their son, Rob. There, she will meet the husband she barely knew, not even a fortnight before he left her, and a bastard boy that looks just like him. Ned is just so battered by trauma and PTSD that he begins his relationship with Catelyn withdrawn and extra defensive, which also makes him respond to her very reasonable questions in a very not good way. As we said at the top of the episode, a very rocky start indeed. While we would like to continue on to Kat's story prior to her arrival at Winterfell, we think this is a good stopping point for this episode. We have given you quite a bit to think about in terms of Ned's past and what kind of baggage he's bringing into his marriage. Oh, and just so we don't end on a, such a total bummer, I wanted to make a brief mention of something that is just totally shippy. Ooh, please do tell. So I love Girls Gone Canon's Lies and Arbor's essays on Ashara Dane, which I read a while back and reread recently to brush up on my Ashara knowledge. Big props for those. But man, I am trash for her idea about Ashara Dane running off with Helen Reed after meeting the little Cranon man at Harrenhal and how she really didn't commit suicide and she's actually safe and happy at Greywater Watch in the neck living her best life under the name Gianna Reed. I don't give a shit if it isn't true. I don't give a <laughs> shit about everything I just said in this podcast. This is my adopted heart cannon, and I will hear nothing different. Ashara Dane has been perched in a tree, sniping off Ironborn with poison arrows for the War of the Five Kings. It is known. I even have an unpublished chapter of a fic where I pay tribute to this idea. Howland Reed carries around a braided lock of his wife's hair, and it's black with a few streaks of gray in it. See, don't you feel better already just thinking about that? Oh my god. I, I accept that. I accept everything leading up in our theory about Ashara and Ned. I accept everything up until her suicide, at which point her suicide is actually her disappearing to the neck. Exactly. Totally, totally acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a much better ending to her story. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for that. Lies and Arbor and Blue Lemons. <laughs> Head cannon accepted. It's heart cannon. As we mentioned, huh? Heart cannon. Oh, heart cannon accepted. Not, well, and head cannon, but that's okay. <laughs> As we mentioned earlier, we recommended listening to Radio Westeros episode on Robert's Rebellion for more background and an, and an in-depth look at the battles and politics. We also highly recommend for further listening, the Learned Hands podcast episode 15, The Horny Trial of Rhaegar Targaryen. 
We will include a link to both shows in our show notes. Thank you all once again for being so supportive of yet another A Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones podcast. Your encouragement and positive reactions have completely floored us. But we couldn't have done it without some key figures. All the credits and thank yous in the world go to George R.R. Martin for the source material we pulled all of our information from, including, but not limited to, A Song of Ice and Fire and A World of Ice and Fire. Many, many thanks to Rachel Rosen for our podcast art and to Mastagram for our intro and outro music. All things audio are made possible by our very own Little Wolf Bird. Please like us, comment, or review, and follow us on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Check out our website, thesilentsisterspodcast.com. You can follow us on Tumblr at The Silent Sisters Podcast or at Sisters Silent on Twitter. If you'd like to contact us in a less public way, email us at thesilentsisterspodcast at gmail.com. My name is Little Wolfbird, and you can find me on Tumblr and Twitter. And I'm Blue Lemons, and you can find me on Tumblr and now on Twitter. All because of this podcast. See you next time, guys. Bye. Soon after, his wife, Catelyn, will be arriving from... I'm just going to go with it. And soon after, his wife, Catelyn, will be arriving from Wiverwood. Wiverwood. It's so hard to say. (laughs) It's so hard to say.